Good morning, everyone. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Daniel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can use your phone, and if you don't have any of that, it'll be on the screen too. Uh, But it's Daniel chapter 7. We will start in verse 13. As you turn there, let me introduce myself, because I'm not the normal one preaching. Uh, I am not Matt. My name is Tyler. I am the associate pastor of youth and community groups here at Prairie Hill. And I say this every time, and I will continue to say it because there will always be new people, hopefully. I talk really, really fast. I'm doing everything I can to slow my voice down. Actually, I have to tell you this. Somebody who hears me speak at youth group every week told me that it's hard to follow me when I'm preaching because I'm talking too slow. (laughs) So if you think I'm going fast, maybe someone else is hearing it differently. Um, But if I sound like I'm talking weird, that's why. But... Anyways, that had nothing to do with anything. Uh, So we're in Daniel 7. Uh, If you've heard me preach before here, you'll know that typically what I do is find something in the Bible that confuses me and then preach about that. It's not what I'm doing today. Mixed it up. This time, I want to preach about my favorite Old Testament prophecy. Uh, Like I said, it's in Daniel 7. It's the prophecy of the Son of Man. And... I wanted to do this, both, like I said, because it's my favorite Old Testament prophecy, and because the term son of man is really important in the Bible. Um, Mostly because in Jesus' ministry on earth, he uses the term to refer to himself a lot. So, I guess as kind of an outline, the plan is to talk about this term in the Old Testament. Like I said, we'll read Daniel 7 in just a second. And then... I'll talk about why Jesus might have referred to himself as the Son of Man all the time. And then lastly, we'll talk about why it matters, because there's no point if it doesn't matter, right? So to start the whole discussion, like I said, I want to read the most interesting use of Son of Man, the term, in the Old Testament. It's Daniel 7, it's verses 13 and 14. So if you could stand in honor of God and his word... I'm going to read Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, and then I'm going to pray. So yeah, this is Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I'm going to pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you specifically today for the term son of man and all the ways that it's used in the Bible. Lord, I pray that this message will not simply be like an intellectual discussion of theology, but something that touches our hearts. I pray that we see that the ways Son of Man is used in the Bible are ways that matter for us now, that they show us your love and how you were like us and became one of us. pray that anything I say that's dumb or incorrect or heretical is forgotten immediately. Um, I pray that your word will not return void because it doesn't typically do that. So, we love you, Lord. I thank you again for the chance to preach. I pray that you'll bless it in your name. Amen. You can sit down. So, yeah, I hope you noticed in Daniel 7 the term son of man. 
Um, I think it would be helpful to start with the context of how we got here to a son of man coming up on the clouds to heaven and given authority. This chapter, Daniel 7, is wild. If you're not familiar with the book of Daniel, the the first six chapters are stories about living in exile. Like, they're stories about God's chosen people when they were removed from the promised land and how some of them, like a remnant, remained faithful in that time. And then the second six chapters are a bunch of prophecies that are super confusing and people still debate today. And this is chapter seven, so this is one of those prophecies. Um, I'll give you the short version. Basically, this is a dream that Daniel had. He dreamt that he was standing on the edge of a raging, turbulent, chaotic sea, and out of the sea came four different beasts. And the beasts are kind of like animals, but they're like also more grotesque. You can read it yourself. There's like a leopard with four faces. There's a bear with ribs in its mouth. It's really crazy. It is. Um, and as much as I could spend the next hour nerding out about what the symbols in that dream mean, which would be super exciting for me, but probably really boring for you, I'll skip to the end. Um, those four beasts appear and they cause chaos and then the ancient of days who is God the father appears and defeats them and it's in the wake of God defeating these beasts that the son of man figure appears as we read he he comes on the clouds he's given power authority and an everlasting kingdom it's a cool picture this son of man who appears in Daniel 7 is kind of unique. Like He's actually really, really unique. I don't want to undersell it. Because the term son of man, those three words, son of man, it, you'll get sick of hearing me say that by the end of this, but son of man is used a lot in the Old Testament. It's used 107 times. I, I looked it up. I did not count. Um, but 93 of the times it's used out of the 107 are talking about one person. His name is Ezekiel. The book before Daniel in your Bible is Ezekiel. I'm not going to read anything from there. But Ezekiel was a human being. He was a prophet of God. And the like 93 times that son of man is used of Ezekiel, the point is Ezekiel is a person. Like that might sound really obvious, but the point is like Ezekiel is a human being. God uses it, says it to him. Ezekiel says it about himself. There might be other people that use it about him. But the point all across, 93 times, Ezekiel is a human being. That's the point of the term usually when it's used. In Daniel 7, though, it's different, and it's kind of weird, like I said. Because this son of man, same term, comes on the clouds, he's given authority to rule, he's given an everlasting kingdom that will never fade away. That's That's not typical for sons of man, because not only are we seeing this term that's almost always used for a human being, it's right next to this term, comes on the clouds. Usually in your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, if you see that someone is coming on the clouds, you're seeing the presence of God. Like if you, if you know the story of Israel leaving Egypt and wandering in the wilderness and going to the promised land, they were led by a pillar of cloud, which was God's presence. Then when they get to the promised land and they set up the tabernacle in the wilderness in the promised land, God's presence comes into the tabernacle and they can't go in anymore. And it's represented by cloud, like a cloud descending upon the temple. So 
to see the term son of man, like human being, right next to the term coming on the clouds, that should be weird to us. Like, that would have been kind of strange. Like, it's almost surprising that it's here because you could read this and think, oh, a human being is like God. And Jewish people would have been very against human beings being like God. I mean, we're against human beings being like God. So the fact that we have this in Daniel 7, that this is like in the Bible, should be a little weird. Like it should be a little strange that it's in here. Maybe the weirdest thing is that it's not explained very well. Like we, this is the end of the dream, and then in the second half of the chapter, Daniel gets the interpretation. But they don't talk about the Son of Man in the interpretation. They talk about the, the people of God getting authority to rule, and so some people think that the Son of Man is supposed to be the nation of Israel. But we never see the Son of Man again in the second half of the chapter. It's really strange. Mm. I, never mind, I'm not going to go that direction. I thought about going on a rabbit trail. <laughs> um, so we get to the end of the Old Testament. Like It's not just like we get this picture in this book and then it's explained later. We finish the Old Testament and there's just this little hanging thread. Like There's this Son of Man figure, different from any other Son of Man figures, came on the clouds, given authority to rule, and we don't learn who he is. <laughs> then we go to the New Testament. So if you're not familiar, I'll just a really quick overview. We got the Old Testament, we got the New Testament, right? The Old Testament is testifying and pointing forward to Jesus, showing that humans really need Jesus, that we can't save ourselves. And then the New Testament shows us Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, his earthly life, and then people reflecting on him after he ascended back to heaven. When Jesus comes and does his earthly ministry, he calls himself the Son of Man, like, a lot. If you're, again, I didn't count, I looked it up, but Jesus calls himself in the Gospels the Son of Man 81 different times. It's like once a chapter, basically. And whether you're a Christian or not, if you've grown up around Christianity, Jesus calling himself the Son of Man probably is not weird to you. Like, it's probably pretty normal. right? I mean, I grew up going to church, and Jesus and Son of Man are like synonyms. Like, it's really, really common to me. But I think we should think that it's weird. Because there's things that Jesus could have called himself that would have made a lot more sense just on, for, on first glance. Because Jesus is, and was, was and is, the Messiah, he was the Christ, he was the Son of God. All of these terms have an Old Testament basis, and all of them were what Jewish people at the time were expecting. Like, they were expecting a Messiah to come. Like, they were Christ and Messiah, like Messiah is the Hebrew word and Christ is the Greek word. They were expecting that figure to come. They were expecting someone who was the son of God to come. And that was who Jesus was. Like, it would have been so much clearer for Jesus to have come and said, hi, I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. I am the Christ. I am the figure that you have been waiting for. It would have been, that, that would have made obvious who he was. I, a quote from one of my commentaries that I really, really liked about this, it says, when Jesus used the term son of man, Listeners may have found the term mystifying or so general it was communicating nothing. Let me, let me be clear. Like, 
maybe I'm putting too fine of a point on this, but I think this is like kind of important. Instead of calling himself the Messiah, Old Testament term pointing towards Jesus, instead of calling himself the Son of God, I mean, we know from John 1 that he was God's one and only Son. Instead of communicating very clearly who he was and what role he was there to fulfill, he calls himself the Son of Man, which is either going to confuse his audience or be so general that it's communicating nothing except that he's a person, which they probably already knew looking at him. It's really, like, again, if it's not strange to you, it still might not feel strange, but it's a little strange. I hope the question in your head at this point is the one that I've been trying to set up. Why? Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? If there's other things he could have said that would have been clearer and had Old Testament tradition as well, why does he choose Son of Man? I think to understand why, it's important to know what he re- like, what people would have heard if he said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ, I'm the Son of God. Because again, Jewish people were on the lookout for the Messiah. They were, they were waiting for the Messiah. And they thought they knew exactly what the Messiah was going to be like. And yet, what Jewish people thought the Messiah would do was very different from what Jesus was actually coming to do in his first incarnation on earth. Basically, Jewish people had read a lot of the Old Testament. I mean, they knew it super well. A lot of them had it memorized. Most of them knew it much better than we do. And they had made the conclusion that this Messiah figure, like the Son of God figure, was going to come to earth. He was going to free them from their oppression to the Romans. He was going to bring together a bunch of rebels, and they were going to overthrow the Roman authorities. And then the Messiah would become the new king, and the Jewish people would have power. That was what they were expecting. Actually, historically, it, actually in the Bible, like in Acts 4, but then also in history, we have testimony of a lot, well, a, a decent amount of messiahs who would come, like before and after Jesus. Like people who came and said, I'm the Messiah, follow me, we're going to overthrow the Romans. And they would get a band of rebels together and they would go try to overthrow the Romans and then they would die. So Messiah is a very loaded term, as is son of God, because, I mean, if you know your Roman history, the Caesars really liked to call themselves the sons of God, like Caesar Augustus, son of God. And because of all that, like because there's this loading to the Messiah and this loading to the term son of God, it wasn't just Jewish people that were waiting for the Messiah. The Romans were too. The, the, Jewish, the Jews wanted the Messiah to come so that they could make him king, and the Romans wanted the Messiah to come so that they could put him down. This all, like all, all of that, that you could call it a rabbit trail, but there was a point to it, that's all why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. In a sense, he's kind of playing defense. Because in the plan of God, Jesus' earthly ministry, like the incarnation, the first time he came, was set up for him to come to earth, live as a human being for roughly 30 years, have a three-year ministry, and then get crucified for sins and raised, raised from the dead. If Jesus would have come out of the gates immediately saying, I am the Messiah, just practically speaking, he, wasn't, he would not have made it three years. 
The Jews would have tried to make him king. The Romans would have killed him. Him calling himself the son of man kind of obscures who he is until it's time for his true identity or fuller identity to be revealed more so. It's not just defense, though. It's also a couple positive effects. Like I said, I already said this, but he's keeping himself alive. Um, Instead of being shut down and killed because he's saying he's the Messiah, people are curious. They hear him saying, I'm the son of man. They know Ezekiel. They know Daniel. And they probably wonder, what what is he saying about himself? And then secondly, it heightens the tension. Because again, if you're listening to this man who's saying, I am the son of man, you know he's a Jewish teacher, you're a Jewish man or woman who knows their Old Testament, you're wondering who he is. Is he saying that he's a human being, like in Ezekiel, 93 times? Or is he saying something more? Is he, is he claiming that he's coming on the clouds? Basically, it, using this term for Jesus forces the listener to make a choice. Who am I listening to? And this tension continues for like three years during his ministry. And then it comes to a head when he's on trial. Um, I'm going to read a couple more verses. They're in Matthew. You don't have to turn there. They'll be on the screen. But I'm going to read Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 and 64. These are, these are when Jesus is on trial, and they're questioning him about who he is. So I'm going to read verses 63 and 64 of Matthew 26. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, this is so cool, right? He's on trial. They ask him, I mean, Jesus is about to die, so that part really good for saving us from our sins, but I don't know if I'd call it cool. But Jesus is on trial. The high priest looks at him and says, are you the Messiah? Like, once and for all, are you this figure? And he says, you've said so. He doesn't deny it, because that's who he is. But then he immediately pivots, and he pivots to Daniel 7. He says, you've said I'm the Messiah, but I'm telling you, you will see the Son of God, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And when he says that, I also have the next verse that I'm going to read. You'll see how they respond to that. This is Matthew 26, 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? So at the climax, like in on trial, when he's asked point blank, are you the Messiah? He says, well, you've said that. I'm the son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven. You'll see this. And when he says that, the choice is made. Like, the tension is resolved. He's saying that he's from Daniel 7. Like, he's saying that he's identifying himself with that figure. And when he says that, the high priest says, that's blasphemy, you have to die. You're making yourself equal with God. You can tell, this revs me up a little bit. Let me summarize where we've been in case I wasn't clear. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man because he wants to avoid misrepresentation and create curiosity about who he is until it's time for him to more fully reveal his identity as the Messiah. Like I said, really cool theological rabbit hole, 
cool word study. Why does it matter? Because you could totally accuse me at this point of just just talking about something that I read a lot about and was interested in and wanted to share as a research project, right? So why does, why does this term matter? Like, why does it matter that Jesus is the Son of Man? I think it matters a lot. Because when Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, as human, like that's what the term meant, Jesus is identifying himself with us. When Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, I am a human being, he's identifying himself with human beings. As much, like, as, much as I've made in this sermon about Daniel 7, I don't want to ignore Ezekiel. I don't think that would be honest of me. Because again, 93 times in Ezekiel, the term Son of Man is used to show this is a human being. I think Jesus knew that. I would be willing to bet on that. Like Jesus calling himself the son of man, it prepares us with Daniel 7. It prepares us for this divine human role because there's it's this really hazy picture, right? Son of man, human being coming on the clouds. He's preparing us for fully God, fully man, which I'm really happy that was in the catechism question this week. That really slotted in nice. I didn't plan that. Um, it prepares us for him having that role. And it also allows us to understand that the one who saved us, like the most holy God, is truly like us. Like Jesus was and is still a human being, fully God and fully man. That's super important. Like it 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 really matters because if he wasn't a human, his sacrifice wouldn't matter for us. Like a God sacrificing himself for humans might be a nice gesture, but would it really like apply to us? How could the death of someone that wasn't a human matter for human beings? It's an interesting theological question, but Jesus dying on the cross as a human being shows us that his sacrifice matters for human beings. And that's true because of what the Bible says about him, And also because of what he's saying about himself his whole time, 81 times during his earthly ministry, I am the son of man. So I think it matters a lot that Jesus is the son of man. I have one more question to ask and answer because you could still accuse me of things. Um, I hope that was helpful in, in knowing why the term son of man matters. But you could really still tell me that like this is just like a brain thing. And I'll take that. I, that's, a, that's a fair critique at this point. So the final thing I wanted to talk about is whether or not this touches our hearts. Like, is this purely an intellectual discussion that would be really good in a university? Or does this, like, can this matter in here? Like, does it matter effectively or just cognitively, to use the big words? Um, I will say, first of all, that, like, for Christians who are seeking to follow Jesus with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, the intellectual side of this is important, right? Like, I don't want to discount the importance of that because if you're reading the stories of Jesus in the New Testament, you're going to see himself say that he's the son of man. Knowing the history behind that and knowing what he's saying about himself, that is good. Like, that's really helpful for us in 
in knowing him better, seeing what he's doing, learning to love him better in that way. But I don't think it's just that. I think this term is more than, more than head knowledge, more than a theological exercise. I think we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus calls himself son of man. I think we can rest in it. I say that because, again, like re- remind ourselves of the story. If, if Jesus is God, which he is, Jesus is fully God, he has all of the power in the world. He is omnipotent. He is powerful enough to save us. Because Jesus is and was fully a human being, he can save us. His sacrifice is relevant. And it means that he gets us. Like, he, he understands us. Like, if you think that I'm rambling by, by going into the fact, like, Jesus sacrificing himself as a human means he understands us, it's not, it's not off base. This is biblical. I'm going to read one more verse. It's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Um, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but the person said, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Okay, because Jesus is more than simply divine. He is divine. He is also fully human. He, he gets it. Like, the things that you go through, he can relate. It's not, it's not mere sympathy. It's not, oh, yeah, that would be really hard, human. I'm sorry. It's empathy. It's, I have experienced what you've experienced, and I relate, and I understand, and I can take it. Jesus being a human being, Jesus being the Son of Man, means that every hurt, every pain, every temptation, every piece of suffering we've experienced, he has also experienced it. The one who knows no sin, the one who did not sin, like us in every way, except that he didn't sin. In 1 Corinthians it says that he became sin on the cross. If there's anything that you think is like too, like too deep, like if there's anything that like maybe cuts too deep that Jesus maybe doesn't get, like a temptation that you have that you don't think Jesus had, he's felt it all. He's felt all of the temptation stronger than we have because he didn't submit to it. He felt it to the point that we sin and then farther on to its fullest extent. And he took it on himself, he went to a cross, he bled for it, and he died for it. The man understands you. I will only say one more thing, and I think I would be like failing my calling if I didn't mention this. And I've been saying it for the past five minutes, but whether you're a Christian or not, like if you're not a Christian and you feel like nobody understands you, or if you are, it might sound really, really basic, but like Jesus understands it completely. You can come to him with anything. You can go to him with anything, and he will take it, he will love you through it, and he will love you out of a place of knowing what it's like. And he'll go to the Father and intercede for you, which is also beautiful and wonderful. I think that's all I have. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray to close, and then I think my lovely wife will do one more song. And I think I'm doing the benediction. If there's an elder on that, just, okay, I'm not doing the benediction. I'm going to pray. <laughs>
<laughs> Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for your church. Thank you for your people. Um, thank you that even when our communication channels break down, you provide the people to do your work in your ministry. Jesus, I thank you that you understand me with all of my quirks, all of my speech, everything about me, Lord. I thank you that you knit me together in my mother's womb and you understand me. And I thank you that's true for people who are not pastors and people who do not work in the church, people who don't go to church, people who don't know you. Lord, I thank you that you understand them too. Jesus, allow us to experience the comfort that comes from who you are. Allow us to love you with everything that's in us and follow you with our whole lives. And I thank you that we have an eternal hope that we spend our lives following you and that we get to go be with you. So, I love you, Lord. Uh, Thank you for your word. Please bless the rest of our days. In your name, amen.